Hello, my name is Kel Spellman and I'm here to welcome you along to another one of our classic bonus episodes. This time we get to hear even more from supermodel and climate activist Lily Cole. I absolutely adored this conversation. And it's safe to say the fashion industry has a lot of work to do to become more sustainable. So Lily was such a great person to talk to about this. We had a good old chat about her experiences in the fashion industry and her work to help protect our planet. I do hope you enjoy this as much as I did and I'll see you on the other side. I went to India with the Environmental Justice Foundation to look at the supply chain from the beginning to the end of a carbon neutral organic t-shirt. And it was super inspiring because I guess at that point in my journey, I had decided that instead of focusing on all of the like horror stories, which we can focus on in supply chains, I wanted to focus instead on positive examples. And so what are what are the versions of fashion and trade that can be done in a way that's positive and even empowers communities and protects ecosystems through their making? We went first to the organic cotton farm where the cotton is produced and then we went to different factories in the supply chain that then spun the cotton and then weaved it into t-shirts. All of the factories were powered by renewable energy and we also went to a dye plant where the dye water was 100% recycled within the system and so often that doesn't happen and then you often get kind of polluting chemicals going into the local rivers or ecosystems but in this example it was a kind of closed system and they got me to drink the water that had been kind of recycled through the dye process and I survived that. (laughs) (laughs) Very tentative. (laughs) Um, But it was inspiring to see that it's possible to produce something in a way that is you know, that it's not harming anyone or and actually in a way is empowering the different members of the community who are working on that supply chain. And also that it was mass manufacturing because a lot of the uh, supply chains I'd been looking at, it's not very scalable and the pieces were very expensive because it's handcrafted. What was interesting with the t-shirt version was that it was mass produced. So actually the price was very competitive with a regular t-shirt mm-hmm. and it allowed me to kind of glimpse a vision where we could still kind of provide affordable clothing to the world in a non-harmful way. I think it was, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like only 1% more expensive to produce. It was a kind of very fractional difference. Yeah. But then, so taking that system that you'd found in India, obviously the, the, the dream world would be that every fashion company label or anyone that's producing has a similar sort of system in place. How easy do you think it would be to almost shake up or the systems that are in place that aren't doing that at the moment. Playing devil's advocate, again, how realistic is it to try and give it that full shake-up to uh, enable the practicality of that? Oh, I think it's totally possible, and I think we're getting there. I think we will get there. It just takes time, because right now it's been largely voluntary. Like, that supply chain was set up by voluntary organisations and charities making those choices and trying to make a better product, and they were pioneers in a way. And you have more and more companies now voluntarily trying to improve their supply chain, communicating that to their customers, hoping that it gets more, you know, it gets more customers buying into those values. But it's still voluntary. And so it means that we still have a lot of fast fashion brands and, you know, even non-fast fashion brands producing in really shady, horrible ways. Ideally, you would have kind of better regulated um, factories and systems so that the, the default was better. And you didn't have to rely on voluntary actions. And then the other possibility is transparency. And, I, and that one actually, in a way, gives me more hope because it's happening with digital 
kind of communication, we're getting more and more transparency on the stories behind supply chains. And with the transparency, I, I'm hopeful that customers will start rewarding companies who are doing better. And that then provides the economic incentives for companies to think about the, the welfare of their workers and the environmental footprint, even if they don't want to. You know, there's an economic yeah. incentive for them to. That's my hope. I do feel yeah. there's a difference between trying and then the reality of the situation. And I guess someone like yourself, Lily, who has um, actually had the chance and done a lot of work in a variety of spaces, I think trying to equip yourself with the knowledge of a full big picture. Uh, how easy then is it for these, I mean, big brands and small, I actually probably would say I'll focus on the big brands to begin with, because I think it's probably a little bit easier for them than the small ones. But how easy is it to actually make the trying a reality? I don't think it's easy. Um, I've actually set up a few sustainable fashion brands myself in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And trying to run a business, especially as a small business, is hard enough anyway. And then trying to bake in kind of social and environmental thinking throughout just makes it much harder and much more expensive because we still exist in a system that is is doesn't kind of give a lot of transparency and ultimately the cheapest things are still the cheapest things and they're going to be making they're going to be made in a, a shady way and if you're making choices to try and make things better it'll be more expensive and that makes it harder as a business to operate so it's unfortunately doesn't feel easy it doesn't feel like there are the right political policies in place yet to make business by default better like for example a carbon price that would make companies pay to pollute that would be so helpful because it would it would give a leg up to all the companies that are trying to make things in a less polluting way um, whereas right now they're somewhat penalized so I'm not saying it's easy and I'm not saying that we've got where we need to go but I do see that a lot of big companies and small companies there's like there's now so many small sustainable fashion brands that didn't exist 10 years ago um and as I said, a lot of the big companies are making big commitments because they don't have a choice. Anybody sensible, even if they don't care about the environment, can just look at the data and make very clear decisions. I mean, Mark Carney, when he was the governor of the Bank of England, warned that all investment funds and banks needed to model in climate risk as part of their portfolio, not because it was the right thing to do, but because it was actually a financial liability to not do that, because it's just very, very clear the trajectory we're on. So... I'm not saying it's always good intentions, but I feel like the, the political pressure for change has been growing. The consumer pressure for change, driven in large part, I'd say, by the school climate strike movement, has been growing. Any businesses that are not listening to that, I mean, there are still, unfortunately, many not listening to that, but <laughs> any sensible businesses would listen to that and would try to make changes. And it's not going to be perfect overnight. I mean, we've still got the the kind of the problem of the fact that you just buying more stuff over and over and over again, the kind of logic of capitalism, not just fashion, like capitalism in general, mm -hmm. is kind of somewhat antithetical to sustainability unless we can invent new business models that are more circular. But there are signs that that's also starting to happen as well. It's a theme that has popped up throughout this series so far in whichever industry we've focused on. Spending of the money is actually probably one of the easiest and simplest ways you can raise your voice and, and have it heard by those who you want it to have heard by. Just just going back a little bit, Lily, is this why then I guess you kind of made a step, conscious step back away from modelling because of the, you found, I guess, the, the conflict in kind of what you wanted to do as far as moving into a more sustainable space and trying to help our planet and environment that conflict when with your work is that kind of what made you step away a little bit yeah although if I'm honest like 
I was never I was never out to be a model you know I was just lucky that I was asked and went on this kind of amazing journey with it as a teenager but I always had my interests elsewhere and in film particular I'd always been into acting and film from a young age and um and then whatever you want to call this kind of like activist work that ended up going into the business space so yes I kind of stepped away because I it didn't feel like it was aligning with the direction I was going on in my own kind of I don't know what you want to call it journey but also because I was just really interested in other things and the more time you put into other things the less time you have right for for the for the first job so so yes and no I guess is my answer why do you think people still kind of haven't accepted the severity of the situation when, as you say, the science is clear and the warning signs have never been never been more present? It's a good question. Um, I actually have my own podcast series, Who Cares Wins? And the last episode is How Much Should We Care? And it explores this exact question. It's something I've been fascinated by um, and hence wanted to dive into um, the kind of cognitive dissonance around the the issues we face. And it's certainly something I identify with myself too. You know, in writing my book, Who Cares Wins, there were times where I got really deep into the science and really kind of was confronting the reality of the situation. And it's almost debilitating, you know, like it's, if you're, yeah, you kind of accept that there's an existential threat. Where do you go from there? How do you you know, think about the next job you're going to do or your holidays or like, you know, the meeting up with friends for a drink or any of the nice, simple stuff that we we may get to choose and uh, fill our lives with um, suddenly becomes a bit less relevant and everything takes on a real heaviness. I say that to say that I therefore can't exist in that space all the time. And I know personally, I'm constantly in a state of cognitive dissonance um, because otherwise you can't really function. And that doesn't mean... Uh, Jonathan Safran Foas, who who I um I had in the podcast, writes a really, really, really beautifully, I think, about this point in his book, uh, We Are the Weather, where he basically says, makes the argument that we all say we believe in the climate science, but we don't actually really believe it. Because if we actually really believed it, we would be taking much bigger action. And so we're kind of tricking ourselves in a way by saying we're able to have the conversation but not actually embed the knowledge um and um and that's because it's just too big almost to fathom and i i think that not everyone but i think many many people are in some kind of spell of disbelief even if they claim that they aren't they believe the the situation yeah and and i think the the overwhelmingness of it that is i think a, a feeling that particularly for young people as well and something that I felt I remember around 15, 16 where you kind of do just want to bury your head in the sand. I wondered when kind of finding yourself in those moments, do you have any little things you do to kind of pull yourself out of it or how did you strike the balance of going like I'm aware of the severity of the situation but I can't get too bogged down in it and I have to find things to be hopeful for and work towards? It's a tricky one. I think that hope is, a, is plays a really important part and for me kind of, yeah, optimism and hope um, are the kind of maybe crutches I use to to accept, try and accept what's going on, but to not become completely dejected and possibly even therefore apathetic and kind of the sense of doom. Um, because I do think that there are also loads, genuinely, I believe this, there are loads of positive kind of trends and positive signs that um, that suggest that we can mitigate kind of the worst possible outcomes and there are so many people 
trying. And that's what my book was trying to catalogue. There are so many people and organisations and even politicians, dare I say, who care and are trying to solve these challenges. Um, and humans have achieved amazing things in the past. So um, I don't, you know, I think that the challenges we have are vast and immense. But I do think, and nature is so amazing and resilient, you know, like whenever we kind of step back and give nature a chance to to solve its own issues and heal, it does, you know, in in, in amazing array. So, um, yeah, I think, yeah, hope and optimism and action too, like, and um, taking the small, small actions. So you, a real kind of antidotes to despair. Yeah, beautiful. What um, about for you? For myself, Lily, um, I, I guess similarly, one of the things that I find my hope in is young people. Um, I, I work quite closely with kind of all age groups, really kind of before 18 and obviously uh, kind of beyond that. But it is, I think, around that seven, eight year old age to 14, 15, there, there's an incredibly powerful group of young people coming through that I think are just a lot more aware and in tune with themselves with the world around them and the planet as a whole uh, and whenever I get to spend time with these young people and hear the way they think and hear the way they talk in such a simple way um, I kind of hope my hope goes well if we can just do our bit now till you're maybe 18 19 20 I think the rest will fall into place so I guess that's one of the things uh, for me and, and and also not getting too bogged down in it you know I've, I've spent far too long you know um I guess focusing on the the doom and the gloom and and trying to absorb all the science and all the horrible facts and you know looking at all the horrible situations around the world there's not much more out there unless it's new that I'm that I can gain any knowledge from I've learned that now so there's no point in me spending so much time into that and more focus on the solutions and how I can maybe do my little bit I guess they're probably two things I think um it's nice and I agree with the with the inspiration from the youth and you said 7 to 8 onwards but We'll see, right, what the next generation is going to do. Yeah. Because it seems, I mean, there are obviously like times where this is not true, but it seems that like if you look at history with a really wide perspective, generational change tends to be quite progressive. Mm -hmm. um, if we look at, um, you know, the emancipation of women or the abolishment of slavery, or, you know, there's like n numerous examples you can pull out to suggest that generational change, at least for the last few hundred years, has been often progressive. If yes. not always. And that makes me hopeful that, yeah, then in the next generation and the generation that follows that, we don't even know. I often think like I'm I must be so like, what old ideas am I stuck on? You know, and I always thought I was quite an open minded person, but I'm sure my daughter and even if, you know, one day she has her child will see me as like stuck in old ways somehow. And I'm trying to catch myself for that. Beautiful. How have you found is the best way to, I guess, spread the message and, you know, the facts of the situation? We've kind of touched upon so much of the, the work that you've done, probably outside maybe from what some people know you as through, you know, Who Cares Wins or Impossible.com. What do you find is the best way to communicate the message and also try and in inspire people? You know, without, as you say, you don't want to be preachy, you don't want to be telling people what to do. I just wondered how, how do you manage that? I don't know how to answer it because I don't know <laughs> what is <laughs> what has been more or less successful of the different things I've tried. And sometimes I get annoyed with myself talking about these issues so much and just feel like I should just shut up and garden, you know, <laughs> because doing the action is like the most important thing. Probably the best answer I give to that is like conversation feels really important. And I feel like that across the board, not just on the environmental conversation, on all of our kind of major issues. 
I feel like we're becoming dangerously polarized in our societies and social media hasn't helped with that with filter bubbles and kind of just the way the algorithms work. Echo chambers, yeah. Echo chambers, yeah. And and I think that's almost one of the biggest challenges we face because we actually have so much in common, even if we have differences of opinion in politics or religion or whatever else. There is so much that we have in common and a desire for kind of healthy environment and a happy future, I think is shared by most, if not all humans. So actually communicating with each other and being open-minded and listening to perspectives that are different to our own to see where we can learn and compromise feels so important. And that was very much the thesis of my book and the podcast I did had very good response, I think, because of that, because I tried to bring in people with differences of opinion and really truly listen to them all and not and not necessarily take sides. So yeah, I think that would be my answer that that trying to stay open minded and make it and make it conversations rather than monologues feels really important because nobody has the answers. I don't have the answers. You know, these questions are way too big. So there we have it. How brilliant was that? Honestly, Lily Cole really is a force for nature. And if you did enjoy it, please do make sure you subscribe. And if you're feeling extra generous, please do leave us a review if you can. It really does help us get this message reaching more people. And don't forget, if you're sitting there with any ideas or tips or you've done something different and thought, I'd love to shout about it, please do tell us about it. Maybe you've been shopping more sustainably. Just send us a message to callofthewild at wwf.org.uk or join in the conversation on Twitter. Just use the hashtag callofthewild. Our next episode is going to be out in two weeks where we look at climate and travel and the simple steps we can take to help our planet. My name is Kel Spellman and this is Call of the Wild, a fresh air production for WWF. The wild is calling, it's time to act. <laughs>